many of you are familiar with the story of David, uh, King David from the Old Testament? Okay, some of you, many of you, you, you may be familiar with some highlights from his life. And here's what you should really know about David as we walk into this is he could be one of the most revered uh, Jewish heroes of their faith. Like this is one of the most amazing people ever. And every king at every time in their nation is pointed back. Are they like King David? If they're a good king, they're like, they were a good king like King David. And it's just amazing how important this man is. And it's, it's, as we walk into it, I want to remember though, that he wasn't always that guy. And I'm not saying that so I could throw shade at David um, and be like, look, he was the worst. Nah, not at all. I just think sometimes we look up to people and we put them on pedestals, not that they're not supposed to be on, but really, they're very much like us. And I know that's hard to hear sometimes because many of us, we kind of use a phrase a lot. And it, it, it impacts how we view ourselves. We use the phrase, well, I'm just a... Uh, Have you ever used this phrase? Someone's asked you to do something or saw something in you that was really awesome. And they said, I think I see this. And you're like, well, uh, listen, I'm I'm just a kid or I'm just a teenager. You know, I I can't do what those people do. I'm just in this department. I'm just a stay-at-home parent. I, I can't, I'm just a single parent. I'm just, and we have all of these things. And not just... I'm just a, but then we say, when I, and we always elevate that next title, when I get this position, when I get into this college, when I, and we're looking to what's next, and we think that when we get to what's next, and that next spectacular thing, that's what's going to change everything. Does it? Not usually. Not usually. Sure, we could have... Some changes in our life may feel okay, but we may get more money. We may have a better title. But I think we've realized, almost all of us, that the higher up you become, the when I become a, whatever's at the end of that, it still leaves us feeling like something's missing. You could win the biggest championship and be so excited And then how many documentaries do we see of sports people um, going after the next one because it's still, they're still not fulfilled. They need that hit again. You see, when our identity is rooted in a title, an accomplishment, something spectacular, we will always be searching for the next spectacular thing. But when our identity is rooted in God, we will be absolutely grounded in who he says we are regardless of the title we hold. And I'm just a becomes a child of God. You see, our identity is shaped in silence, not in the spectacular. Our our identity is shaped in silence, not in the spectacular. Because it's in the silence of our life, these in-between places that God tends to speak to us the most, that we are formed into something different. In the spectacular, we hear everybody, don't we? When we do something awesome, when we accomplish that thing, everybody celebrates. And yet again, when they celebrate, we look for that one more time. And it's like, it's in the spectacular. This is who I am. But we can't live in the spectacular, can we? 
We cannot keep producing that thing over and over and over. And we see this idea of in the silence and in between these major moments of our life, we just got to get through this season to get to that thing. That's spectacular. And we avoid the silence. We don't like silence. As, As a matter of fact, we use silence as a punishment even though we know it's good. How many of you have ever been told, like I have, to go upstairs into your room and think about what you've done? Anybody else? I'm getting lots of thumbs up here. Okay, cool. I I was always sent, and now it's different. I mean, like, now the punishment would be leave your phone, go to your room, and unplug your computer, and, you know, like, you unplug yourself and go be by yourself and think about what you've done. What are we, we're using silence as a punishment. We know that it's important because we want people to think about their lives or what, how they've disappointed us, and yet it's a punishment. And so whenever the moments come that are silent where we begin to think about what we've done or think about who we are, they feel like a punishment. And maybe that's just me who doesn't do well with silence. But it, it's not just silence in our life, but we have silence in our time with God where we can't hear from him sometimes. Silence in the relationship that we have with people where sometimes we feel like we've got to fill in the dead space. Otherwise, it's going to get awkward. And we always, you know, my favorite, awkward silence. Like, why do you say that? It's okay. It's just silent. But David's life, when we look at his life from the start to the finish, what we're going to find is this exact truth, that his identity is going to be shaped in the silence, not in the spectacular, before David ever did anything spectacular, momentous. Before he was a king, a hero, a warrior, he was just a shepherd. He was just a shepherd. And if we want to understand the entire life of David... This hero of our faith, we have to understand what being a shepherd was really all about. And I'll tell you, as someone who grew up in a more urban area of North Jersey, I I did not understand what shepherds do, or or still, I'm learning about it. Um, In the Middle Eastern culture, now as, uh, I mean, a little bit less now than it was 2,000 years ago, or even um, a couple thousand years ago to this point, what we find is that shepherding is a normal way of life for people who live there. Um, shepherding just becomes something most families do when they have herds, and whoever is, as soon as you have a son, that son's going to take over the responsibility, so shepherding. As soon as you have another son, and they're old enough, the older son cannot wait to pass those responsibilities on. And so, by default, whoever is the youngest boy in a family becomes the shepherd. Whoever's the youngest boy in the family becomes the shepherd. And they get stuck with it because the older boys are needed more at home. And as they moved into a more farming, uh, you know, uh, culture, they needed them on the field working the crops, not in the field chasing sheep. So the job was always passed down. And this is actually where David is, is he's the youngest of about eight brothers. And so by default... With no more boys, he is the family shepherd. This is his job, is the family shepherd. And in a story we're going to look at next week, a man named Samuel, who's this prophet running around Israel, he's supposed to go see a man. God says, go see this family of Jesse, and the next king of Israel is going to be one of his sons. And so here's what goes down when Samuel enters into Jesse's home in 1 Samuel This is where we find a lot of the story of David. Chapter 16, starting in verse 8, it says, Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, This is not the one the Lord has chosen. 
Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah, but Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel asks, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. This is where we find David. David, being the youngest of eight sons, is the family default shepherd. Most likely all the other brothers have had this role and they couldn't wait to pass it off. And when David's dad is asked, like, are these your sons? Oh, oh I got another one. <laughs> He's just not here right now. Even David's dad viewed David and viewed this role of shepherding as the least of the roles of the house. The Hebrew word, believe this is so wild to me. I discovered this this week. The Hebrew word that Jesse uses when he says, you know, um, he, my youngest, that word actually, it, it doesn't just mean youngest. It means my smallest and the most insignificant. The most insignificant. That's what's behind this word that's being used. You see, David, even in his dad's eyes, was just a shepherd. Just a shepherd. And this whole being anointed as king thing, he does come back from the field. He does get anointed by Samuel, and he doesn't become king for another 20 years. He's like 10 years old when this happens. Um, a couple of years after this visit from Samuel, being called insignificant by his dad, Sam, uh, David, he um, goes and his brothers are now at war. And Israel has this constant tension with this group of people called the Philistines. And it's, it's like baseball season. You cannot wait to get started and face your enemy. And it was like war season. They could not wait and it's time to fight the Philistines. But this battle was a little bit different because it was a standoff where it was a 1v1 challenge. And whoever wins, wins the battle. It was a way to kind of save on armies and seriously... Uh, this is what David's dad has him do. David says, I, or his dad Jesse says, you got to split your time. You're going to be out in the field with the shepherds, but then I need a door dash. All right. I need someone who's going to bring my sons who are old enough to fight in the army food. And there's a handful of them that are fighting. So he's like, David, you're my door dash and you're my shepherd. And so that's what he does. David kind of, he, he yeah, door dashes on a camel. I don't know what he would drive, you know. Right on, that'd be weird. But he, anyway, he brings this food and he's taking it to his brothers. And as he gets there, um, there's this really awkward moment between older siblings who are somewhere with their friends and a younger sibling coming in. Even thousands of years ago, it's really important to understand that older siblings got frustrated when younger siblings showed up at their stuff. I don't like it, my stuff. Anybody else have that issue? You didn't like when your younger sibling, like, that's, that's my people. Still, like, leave me alone. Well, in 1 Samuel 17, it says, But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was trying to figure out what was going down. That's what David was doing. He was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Right? His brother right here just uses his role to completely demean him he's just asking what's going on and his brother's like what why are you here this is a war what i'm doing is important 
Don't you have like a, a couple shepherd or sheep to take care of? A couple little things that, that need your time that's more important than this? Go back to your insignificance. Can you imagine how this would impact your self-worth and your identity? Can you imagine how your dad and your brothers, the most influential people in your life in this culture, are speaking into you saying, hey, insignificant, get away from us. The more I look at all of David's life, the more that I've come to realize that God used his time in shepherding and, and this family door dashing, these silent times in between to shape his character and to shape his identity that he would need to become king at 30 years old. He needed this time. You see, the life of the shepherd that he had when he was away was not easy. Being just a shepherd was not something that we understand all the time. They have some pretty substantial problems to solve. The principal issue to solve would be food, right? If you've got a herd or a flock of sheep, you've got a responsibility in every season to figure out where can I take them to eat. And all year long, depending on the season, you've got to head to different places. So like during the spring, it's perfect. You're around your town and your flocks can graze right out in these beautiful green pastures right next to you. But as soon as the season started to shift, you had to go to find other pastures where your sheep could eat. And like the first change of season, it was actually not so bad because all the farmers would come through and they'd gather all the crops that they could. Then um, the uh, Israel as nation, they had laws built in so that the poor would be able to go onto the fields right afterwards and they would trample down everything and gather all the extra food so they had stuff to eat. And so they were taking care of the poor. Then, then all the leftovers, they would say to the shepherds, oh, come on, you guys are like, clean up. Just bring the sheep. And the sheep would just go to town on all the stuff that was left over. But when they ran out of that field, they had to go find these different places to eat you got to have the sheep surviving. But you can't just have a meeting. You have to have them drinking. This is another element where, I don't know if you've been to the Middle East, but finding water is not always the easiest thing. And so towns are built around this, which made it easy when you were near home. But shepherds stationed their flocks as much as they could near running streams and running water. And it, it, it couldn't just be any stream or any water because sheep are easily scared. If the water moves too fast, just discovered this this week, amazing to me, if the water moves too fast, they will not drink it. They will not drink it. It's like this, I don't know, you're gonna get caught up in a whoosh, there you go. Like, so it has to be still water, or it has to be gently like babbling, well, babbling brook water, you know, pull up your app and you can have that sound for yourself to go to sleep to. Well, that's what the sheep would do too. And they're like, this is safe water to drink. I'm going to be okay. And so you had to find that slow moving pools of water to quench the thirst, not only of the, the sheep, but you yourself as a human need to have that. And he needs to eat and drink. So he's got, at least he could drink where the sheep are drinking, but his food, what do you do for food? If you're a shepherd, you're not going to eat your sheep. That'd be weird. You know, you, you can't. You're responsible for them. So they had this bag. Um, it was called the scrip, okay? It's called a scrip. It looks a, a little bit like this. And uh, they looked different ways. But this scrip is actually when you would leave home, mom would pack you with uh, breads, 
cheeses, dried fruit, probably some olives put into there. And it was their job as a shepherd to manage what filled your script from your parent. And you were then out with your sheep, and you had to see what you had, manage your resources. And this is the type of bag later on when we find David fighting the giant Goliath. When it says he put some stones into his, you know, bag, this is the type of bag that he was carrying with him. It was a normal shepherd's bag. He had this as he went. So shepherds, right, they're making sure their flocks are fed, that they are uh, watered, making sure that I could stay alive. You see, staying alive is still pretty important because there are predators when you're a shepherd that you have to deal with. Things want to eat your sheep, so you have to figure out how to protect them. Every shepherd would carry um, a, a rod or a staff. And I say rod or, but many of them would carry both. Okay, many of them would carry both. The rod that they would carry is very much like a policeman's club. Okay, it's not hugely long. Um, it was usually made of like oak wood, so it was really, really hard. It had a knob at the end. If you are a Star Wars fan, I want you to think of like the training staff that Boba Fett used when he was becoming a sand person, okay? Are you with me, some of you? All right, if you're not with me, get with it. Okay, go watch Boba Fett. It was great. Episode two was everything, right? So that's what, that's what this kind of was. It had this big knob on the end, except they would take either bone or, um, you know, nails or metal, something like that, and they would nail it into and, and grind it into the, the, the knob of it, and it became a weapon that they would use. It was very useful. You would use it to protect against the animals in the wild who would want to eat your sheep. No shepherd would be found without the rod. And, and the staff that they had was very similar, except it was longer, think a little Bo Peep, okay? And you're like, oh, look at that little hook at the end. The whole purpose of that is to be able to hook your sheep if they're close enough and just kind of guide them back in. Not to hit them with it, but to guide them back in. And that's what you wanted to do. I'm pretty sure David had both of these. He was very familiar with them. But what is the one thing that he's moan, known most for his weapon? The slingshot, okay, the slingshot. This is what a sling looked like. Um, this was the weapon that every shepherd knew how to use. And believe it or not, this weapon right here was used in warfare up to the invention of gunpowder, right? The discovery of gunpowder. Like This has been used even recently. It's not a very complex weapon. It's just simply two strings of sinew, rope, leather, and then some reciprocal that... Re re you know, you know what I'm saying, um, bucket that would hold a stone. And you had to find the right kind of stones. Not all stones are the same. And you could throw it a couple of different ways, I learned this week. Um, the most accurate and the deadly way is when it's swung like two or three times around the head and then released, you let go of one string. So the one with the little hook on the side, that's the one that goes around your finger. And then the other one, you let go. I know this because I got lost in YouTube for hours watching guys compete still doing this, and it's unbelievably awesome. It's so cool, and I'm like, how do I make one? And that's a bad thing for me to think, because I don't have a lot of land, right? Um, shepherds knew how to use this, and they were deadly with it. They knew how to take out predators that were far from them, but it also was very handy if you wanted to use it on your sheep, not to kill them, but it became so delicate where you could do one, two, flip, and you would watch a stone land right next to a sheep on the side of them, almost like a lob, like you're throwing a bocce ball so that when it hits, it scares the sheep. And what's the point? 
I don't feel like hooking you. You're too far. And so it would move the sheep right back into the herd. And so it was this thing that could be used with deadly accuracy or delicacy one way or the other. It was always in the hand of a shepherd. And the last thing a shepherd would need after all these weapons, food, water, is almost all shepherds carried around a flute with them or some musical instrument, but mostly a flute. And it would be a double-sided flute, and they were beautiful, and this is their way of killing time. I don't know if you've ever wandered outside for ages. It gets boring. So they would bring a flute with them, and they would begin to create music. Music was one of the shepherd's closest companions when they were out there. It still is. And it was through music that a shepherd would express his heart. And what's amazing to me is learning that it was through music that their sheep were refreshed. Not only did the sheep know the sound of a shepherd's voice, where if they were all together with a bunch of other flocks and herds, their shepherd could say, I'm going, and then the sheep would follow and know their shepherd's voice, but they would know their shepherd's tone and tune. And as they played, they would know their melodies, and it became part of who the shepherd was. I've seen this firsthand in the Middle East, and it's blown my mind, and there is no doubt in my mind that David had a flute with him when he was out there with his flock. And I don't know if it sounds like it to you, but being a shepherd sounds like a lot of work to me. It sounds like a lot of work. And to think that you would just pass this off to the runt, the insignificant, just a shepherd, when we see David being called by his dad and Samuel's there ready to anoint him, he's 10 years old. He's 10 years old with these weapons, with his scrib, with his, you know, his flute ready to go. He was then just a teenage shepherd. But a teenage shepherd is who defeated Goliath, just a shepherd. And as I've thought about David's life and his time as just a shepherd, I've realized how much being just a shepherd impacted his entire outlook on his whole life. It was completely different. You know, with his rod, his staff, his sling, I don't know that David ever saw himself as a warrior I'm pretty certain that he never woke up one day a hero. Instead, he honed his skills as a protector in the fields over those sheep. Even later in his life, when songs are being sung about his great successes in battle, the spectacular moments in his life, I wonder if he's thinking, but that's just what a protector does. Because really, I'm not a warrior. I'm I'm just a protector. Because that's what a shepherd does. I'm just a protector. And a good shepherd protects his sheep at all cost. You know, when I look at the collection of psalms that we have, these beautiful Old Testament uh, Jewish hymns right in the middle of your Bible, 150 of them, over half of them are written by just a shepherd. Over half of them are written by someone who sat outside pondering and looking. And how can a warrior king write with such beauty? In imagery, I imagine many hours with just a flute, probably working out song ideas, thinking through lyrics that might work or tones and melodies in the cool evening. It's pitch black, there's no moon, and he's entranced by stars in the sky as his sheep are resting right next to him. And why not try to figure out a song right now? I begin to wonder what words David sang that we never knew, that were never written down. I wonder what songs he heard from other shepherds that he tried to remember and duplicate. 
You know when kids try to sing songs that they've heard on the radio and they get all the lyrics wrong? I wonder if David was ever like that. I mean, like, you know, Phoebe and Friends, where it's like, you know, all right, I remember it. Hold me closer. Tony Danza. That's a very different lyric than a tiny dancer, isn't it? I wonder if David ever messed it up and, and, and it was like, man, that shepherd's really messed up. He's got all the wrong lyrics. Like, right? was, did this happen? I don't know. I wonder how many songs he just made up because he was bored and it was just watching what he was doing. Did you ever hear, see kids, I'm brushing my teeth. Kids make up songs about everything if you let them and they know no one's watching. Anybody, I, I do this all the time. I used to do this. I still do this. Um, I, you could make up songs about nothing. I bet you that existed. I'm sure David at some point was singing about a sheep just drinking water, singing about slinging. I, I, was he singing about whatever else he was feeling? It really doesn't matter what you're singing about, though, because guess what, man? No one's going to listen. You're just a shepherd. To his family, to the culture, just a shepherd. So unimportant. And what they missed, and I think that we miss too often, is simply that our identity is shaped in silence, not in the spectacular. Our identity is shaped in silence and not the spectacular. And I believe it was the long days in silence that David had with no companion but sheep and music that his identity as a worshiper of Yahweh took root. That this is who I am. Maybe it was in the silence of just another green field. As sheep relaxed and that stream bubbled by that he recognized... I can trust God as a provider for me and for my flock. In the silence when they were sleeping, he looked and went, that's what real refreshment looks like. Maybe it was in the heavy silence that followed the, the heart raging battle of defeating a lion or defeating a bear. And his sheep are watching and he sees them completely at peace and he says, oh man, in that moment I get why a rod and a staff, they bring comfort to my sheep. They knew that they were safe. What if David was actually on to something and he received a gift? What if, what if he could shake off the lie that I have to be something spectacular to, be, to mean something to God and we could all understand the truth that being just a is enough to be called a child of God? What if we understood that and stopped looking for all the spectacular things all the time and start saying, God, when I get to this point, you can use me. And we stop lying to each other and say, well, when you get to that point, things will change because David was never concerned with being just a shepherd and God wasn't concerned with it either. You know what God tells him when he's about to become king of Israel? In 2 Samuel 5, it says that you will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. You will be Israel's leader. God never viewed David's role as a shepherd as less than, even though everyone else did. He tells David, you want to be a good leader? Be a better shepherd. And I think this is how David saw himself his whole life. I I'm a shepherd. Near the end of his reign, um, he makes a horrendous mistake. He's, you know, uh, tempted by pride. He counts all these people, and, and the Lord's like, what is your problem? I'm going to punish you for this, and, and, and I'm going to let you choose your punishment. And as God begins to put pressure on him to choose the punishment, and he doesn't want to do it, this is what David says to God as God begins this process in 2 Samuel 24, he says to the Lord, I have sinned. I, what? What was the phrase he uses there? I, 
I, the shepherd, that's how he views himself. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. But these are but sheep. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David wasn't just a king. David was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And a shepherd, at least a good one, is willing to lay down his life for his flock. It wasn't an insignificant job for the youngest runt of your family. It was the perfect place for him to find his identity because that's what Israel needed long before they knew it. His identity was shaped in the silence, not the spectacular. Silence is not an enemy. It is a gift from God. The space in between is not wasted. It is for us. You see, in Psalm 23, that faith so just beautifully read for us when we started our time in the Word. This is a psalm that so many of us know we've got it on all sorts of memorabilia and all of these things. But David wrote this psalm, most likely, most scholars believe this was at the end of his life when it's coming to a close. And the words that he pens down don't stop him from being a shepherd or thinking a shepherd is less than because the very first line of this psalm simply says that the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. David does not assign a job of insignificance to Yahweh. He says, I understand who I am because this is who you are. I have been created in your image. David calls the Lord his shepherd. And the rest of this psalm goes on to explore how the Lord has shepherded David his whole life. How has David been the sheep underneath the shepherd, the good shepherd? And it says that the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lay down. In green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Do you see the hope that we can have from just a shepherd? It influenced his entire life, and he saw the providence and the goodness of God. He didn't say, you take care of my palace. You, you make sure I've got wine flowing. No, you help me. You help me lie down in green pastures because I'm tired. You lead me beside quiet waters because I need that. I need your help. I don't know how to get there. I'm going to drink from the raging well. I need this. You refresh my soul. I need this. He continues with, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley or the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you were with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? They comfort me. I just told you they use these to beat off animals. And they're like, you know, Boba Fett style. How could that bring comfort? Because to the sheep, they knew they were safe. And even when it was used against them, to, it was to bring them back. Not to discipline them, but to bring them and to restore them. David sees that there are dark seasons in life where we need restoration. And he sees God as such a good shepherd that he says, you've got weapons at your disposal that comfort me because I know that I'm safe when you're leading me. And where you're leading me, it's not for my glory, but it's for your name's sake. This is to make sure that you are elevated. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to fear evil because I'm safe. You're with me. And then he closes it with, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he brings it to current time, but his whole beginning of the psalm is, you are my shepherd. These are the things you've done. And even as he ends his life, 
It's the Lord who prepares the table for him. It's the Lord who has gotten things ready for him. He's only in the situation he's in because the Lord has anointed him. He's taking care of him. Everything he has is because God's given it to him and it overflows for other people. It's all about his goodness and his mercy and his love. And no matter what has happened for his whole life, his good shepherd has never given up on him. I wonder how many versions of this psalm David wrote before we have the one we have. I wonder how many iterations and how many other things he saw about his good Lord, the shepherd, that we would never see because we, didn't, we don't have that relationship with God because we're just a... This morning, can I just stop and tell you you're not just a... Your kids are not just kids. The CB guides, the kids guys took so much time, effort, energy, and I am so proud, so proud that we get to do this together because they're not Justa. It was 10 years old when Justa Shepherd was anointed king. God knew something was going on before anyone else did. What's going on in the life of our kids that we're writing off and saying, ah, they're just crazy? No, they're not, maybe a little. They're God's children. They're just teenagers. They'll grow out of this. They're like, oh, I can't. Just teenagers. That's who defeated Goliath. That's who saved Israel. That's who God chose to say, I'm going to turn this entire nation around because an adult can't stand up for himself. I'm going to use them to change the, the, the whole world. They're not just teenagers. This is the lifeblood of our church. Teenagers, I need you so bad to lead in our church. You are somebody here. Your voice matters so much. Adults, we're not just a, just a, you fill in your profession. You are so important and so valued by God. You are so needed where you are and God is teaching you about himself through what you do now. There is no wasted moments in your life. God is revealing himself to you. The question is, are we slowing down enough to pay attention to him? Are we silent enough or do we fill our time with another post, another game, another thing on our phone or another role at, at work that I think I could take something on because maybe if I do that, when I get to this place, then God, I'm ready to be used. No, he wants to use you now where you are. Why are you waiting until something spectacular happens? Because the truth is that our identity is shaped in the silence, not the spectacular. Stop setting each other up and let's stop setting our world up and ourselves up for we'll mean something when the spectacular happens. God loves you now. He loves you the way that you are. You've been created in his image. What you do represents him. It's not a waste of time. You're not just a. We need to take time and slow down. And in a season of Lent, we have this time. Slowing down to look to the cross. Please, I beg you, stay faithful to what's in front of you right now. What's God put in your lap right now? Just a teacher. You're so important. You're just a construction worker. No, you have influence. You're just in between jobs. No, you're not. 
You're my favorite. I'm just... You're not. You are a child of God. And that's exactly what we sang, isn't it? I'm a child of God and I am who you say I am. Your time in between is not wasted and I beg you to slow down because it's the Lord who prepares a table before us. We have to come to eat. And that's exactly what happens as Jesus heads to the cross. He comes to the table, the Passover, where they celebrate this great freedom, this nation that, that God has brought us out of slavery and has a great thing for us when we get to this promised land, but there's a long in-between, isn't there? And it's in that in-between silence that God shows them who they really are, that they are not slaves. It takes a while to unlearn that. Jesus looks at his disciples at the last supper, this Passover Seder, and says, I've prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Well, that's what a good shepherd would say. When we come to receive communion today, we didn't prepare it. It was prepared for us. And we receive what God has done for us. We culminate our service at communion because we believe this, the body and the blood of Christ, when we celebrate this together, this and he is who should be on our mind as we leave, that he had times in between 30 plus years of his life were so insignificant, weren't they? He was just a carpenter. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he says, there's, there's good builders and there's bad builders. Good builders aren't gonna listen to what I say and, and their houses are gonna wash away, but, but, but good builders, it's like you're listening to what I say. You see how his identity was shaped before he ever did anything spectacular? He knew who he was. Who are you? Who do you bring to the table for communion today? Who does God say that you are? That's way more important than what anyone else has to say to you. Would you stand with me as we prepare to take communion? tells us that when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right, in God's sight, by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we certainly will be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. You are a child of God. You are a friend of God. If you have trusted Jesus Christ and in his teachings and in his death and resurrection, we would encourage you to come and celebrate communion with us. If you have not done that, we encourage you not to celebrate. And, and it's no shame to you. It's actually a great blessing not to. 
according to scripture to stay. But we do this to elevate Jesus and remind ourselves this is who he says we are. As you come today, come with who does he say you are? Let's receive communion together.